Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Read there in just a moment. While we turn there, though, let me pray for our time together. Father, I pray that you would open your word to us, that we could see your truth. And you would open our heart, open our life to your word, that it might accomplish its purpose in us, that it might change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. A couple of days ago on the Friday post-Thanksgiving I, as my custom is, went to the gym that morning to work off some of that Thanksgiving meal. And I do what I always do at the gym, and that is read on my Kindle. And as I was reading there, I noticed something up on the television screens that I don't usually pay attention to, but it said, breaking news. And I thought, oh, this could be important. And so I took a break and plugged in my headphones and turned to the right channel. And about that time, my eyes were able to focus more on what was uh, being the, put up on the screen, the breaking news, and I learned Friday, breaking news, people were shopping. Yeah, true. I mean, nobody would have known it, right? Black Friday, who would have guessed that people were at Walmart and Target and places like that? It was breaking news here in Columbia, I guess all around the world. There was something about that that struck me that seemed so typical of our culture, that everything is breaking news. It's a breaking news, a storm is coming. Or you listen to the radio during the winter season, and it's always check back in here with this because we'll tell you how bad the roads are going to be. You know, the worse they make that storm sound, the more likely you are to tune in. But it's not, of course, just in something like, like weather. It's, it's something in like politics, where now we face the fiscal cliff and every problem the country faces is put into this language that says if we don't solve this, the country's going down this time. This is the big thing. 
or, or even it's kind of in, a, in the health field. You know, it seems like every once in a while there's a, there's a pandemic that is threatened and some strain of some virus is going to wipe out the, 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 the world. You know, if you're old enough like I am to remember, you might remember killer bees were coming up from South America and we were all supposed to be deathly afraid of killer bees. And then it was bird flu and swine flu and the N1H1 and all. You know, it's just... Everything, though, is apocalyptic. Tune in for the breaking news. It's like that in the self-help section of the bookstore. Everything is life-changing. It's like that in sports where at the beginning of every Super Bowl, we already know it's a historic Super Bowl. And, And every sporting event is now an instant classic. So what do you do when you find something that really is significant, that really is historic, that really is life-changing? How do you separate it from all the fake stuff, all the stuff that really is not that big a deal, but in our hyped-up world, we've got to all make it sound so important? We've got to answer that question today because what we read today is truly historic. It is truly unique, one of a kind. Jesus tells us the story of this woman in Mark 14 and then tells us that everywhere the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. Every time the church gathers, in every church, in every culture, in every century, this woman's story is going to be retold. He doesn't say that to anyone else. It really is once in a lifetime kind of thing. Why this significant promise? Why this story told in memory of her? Why does he say this to her and to no one else? Well, in this chapter of Mark's gospel, we'll see that we face another turning point in Jesus' life and ministry. Because it is in Mark chapter 14 that everyone begins to abandon Jesus before he heads to the cross. We're told at the beginning of Mark 14 that it is two days to Passover. That means two days before Jesus will be crucified. And we find out there are people who are conspiring against Jesus, secretly scheming to take his life. But it might not be the people you would ordinarily guess are trying to kill Jesus. See, it's not the pagans that are trying to kill him. It's not the atheists or the anarchists. The people who are scheming to try to kill Jesus are the religious people. In fact, we're specifically told it's the chief priests, it is the, it is the leaders, the religious leaders, it is the teachers of the law, it is the religious teachers that are most intent upon trying to kill Jesus. See, I think we could take something from this. I, I think that Christians are tempted to think that the enemy that, to our faith is something outside, some some group outside of us. You know, some people have said, well, it's the culture in general. They're infiltrating our our hearts, infiltrating our churches. It's media. They're infiltrating our homes. It's, It's some political party we may disagree with. It's some group whose agenda we may deplore. It's the ACLU. They won't let you pray at school functions. It's something out there that is going to harm our faith. But you see, you know who went after Jesus? The religious leaders and one of his inner ring, Judas. One of the twelve, it says. Judas, one of the twelve, set out to betray him. You see, it wasn't something from outside. It was something from inside that betrayed Jesus. 
And I don't think our greatest enemies are outside of us. I think our greatest enemies are inside. Inside the church. Our greatest enemies are things that pull our own heart away from Christ. Our greatest enemies are the seemingly small and insignificant things that keep us from being men and women who read our Bible and pray. Our things that our greatest enemies, the gossip that divides families and churches. It's the sin that destroys our life. It's not outside, it's inside. There's another warning here. That proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Judas, we're told, is one of the twelve. He was as close physically to Jesus as you could be. Few people, if any, few people, if any, closer. And yet his heart was far from God. See, the fact that you and I are here this morning does not guarantee our faithfulness. Perhaps you're here this morning because your heart is drawn to worship Christ and you want to learn. At least you want to want to worship and learn. But you could be here because this is where your friends are or because you're from a traditional family or because you want to make some good business contacts. See, just because you're in church, just because you serve, just because you're a Bible study, that doesn't guarantee faithfulness. Well, one of the things we learn is that the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they would have killed Jesus on the spot, but they were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of the crowds, and so it took somebody from the inside, Judas, one of the inner ring, one of the inner circle, one of the twelve, to help betray Jesus. And so this story starts out with telling us that people are conspiring to kill Jesus, and it ends with telling us that Judas works to betray him. And in the middle, Mark tells us about a party. It's a party of people who love Jesus. It's a party of people who are following Jesus and have hearts thankful for all that Jesus has done. And I think the reason he tells us that party right in the middle of telling us how Jesus is being betrayed and killed is because he wants us to see that real worship stands in stark contrast to the contempt that the religious leaders and Judas had for Jesus. See, this party is happening in Bethany. Bethany, you might remember, is a small town a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And during this final week of Jesus' life, it has kind of operated as a home base, served as a home base for him. Jesus would spend the day in Jerusalem and then retreat back to Bethany each evening. And based on what the other Gospels tell us, we can probably be sure that, that, that this is the house that Mary and Martha, who are sisters, and their brother Lazarus live in. And Simon, that's mentioned in this story, very well may be their father. What we know for sure from Mark is that a man named Simon the leper is hosting this party at his house. Now, it would probably be more accurate to say Simon the former leper because if his leprosy had not been healed, if he had not been given medical clearance and religious clearance, he would not have been able to be inside of Bethany. He would not have been able to own a house. He would not have been able to host a party like this. So this is Simon the former leper who's hosting a party for Jesus. And you can't help but wonder, I wonder if this is one of the lepers that came to Jesus, like the one in Mark chapter 1 that came and said, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Is this one of the lepers who'd lived on the outside of society, ostracized by society, who had to always go through life announcing his presence? A leper is coming. A leper is coming because no one wanted to be contaminated, either physically or spiritually, from coming into contact with him. Is this one of those lepers whose body was literally disintegrating before his own eyes? who was cut off from family, friends, and religion? Is this one of those lepers that had been healed by Jesus? Is that why he was throwing the party? Because Jesus had radically transformed his life? Well, Simon the leper is the host, but we're told that the disciples were also there. And John tells us that Lazarus was there. Can you imagine having a former leper and a former dead guy at your party? That's a pretty good party, yeah. C.J. Mahaney says there are some questions he would have loved to have asked Lazarus had he been there. Have you ever thought about that? What would you like to ask Lazarus? What's it like to die? Don't you wonder that sometimes? Lazarus knew. Hey, Lazarus, is it a bummer you have to die again? Hey, Lazarus. What's heaven like? What's it like, Lazarus, to see your Savior's face? Hey, Lazarus, who broke the news you had to come back here? <laughs> who broke the news? Well, Simon the leper is hosting it. We know the disciples are there. Lazarus is there. We're also told, of course, that Jesus is there. He's the whole reason for the party. And we're told that what they're doing is reclining at a table. Now, probably what's happening here is the men are reclining on something like a couch, experiencing a meal together. You see, in that culture, it was very common for men to recline back and to eat. And something you might think of in our day is sitting on a couch and eating a big meal. And men like that in every culture and every century because right after the meal, then they can fall right asleep on the couch. You know, not just on Thanksgiving, but, but any day. And, and, you know, so women, by the way, just a little FYI, when men do that, when they like to eat on the couch and then fall asleep, that is very biblical. They are not lazy. They are not being lazy, so don't think that they're being as much like Jesus as they can. I, I was reading an academic commentary, scholarly commentary, you know, um, about this passage, making sure I understood what was happening and all. And, and, and I came across this sentence now. I'm going to read it to you because it stood out to me. It said, as a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship. Now, Jewish male fellowship is just academic jargon for a bunch of Jewish guys. As a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by a woman unless she was serving food. And I read that again and I thought, I was born in the wrong century. <laughs> I told that to my wife and she didn't think it was as funny. <laughs> The reason the commentator wants us to know that is because he wants us to be astonished at the fact that this unnamed woman, now John tells us it's, this woman's named Mary, Martha and Lazarus' sister, but in Mark she's an unnamed woman, was, is bold enough, is courageous enough to walk into this group where she would not have been welcomed and wanted. It would not have been appropriate for her to be there, but she walks in the middle of this group of men eating a meal, and she takes perfume and pours it on Jesus. And they're watching her a little bit in disbelief. And the smell of the perfume is permeating the room that they're in. And it's not something you can miss. Mark stumbles all over himself trying to tell us how valuable this perfume is. 
He says that it, she had it in an alabaster jar. So it was something that was very special to her, and she kept it in a special little jar. It was not only expensive, he tells us, but it was very expensive. And it wasn't just nard, it was pure nard. It was kept in its own jar. It was very expensive, pure nard. He's just piling word after word after word to help us get how special this thing was to this woman, how significant it was to her. Nard is an a, a herb, or it's an ointment that comes from a... Um, an Indian plant, the roots of an Indian plant, and it was fairly rare. And it would cost, to have this much nard would cost about a year's wages. So I just looked up, what, what, what would be a year's wages for the average household in Columbia, Missouri? I found in 2011, couldn't find 2012, but in 2011, it was $46,000, the average household income. So I, I don't know exactly if that's true or not, but let's just run with it. Imagine you're making $46,000, now you're trying to save $46,000. How long would that take you? Well, this woman had, had something, this pure nard, that, that had, would cost a year's wages. But, but no woman in that culture would have ever had a job that could have paid that much. So it's not just that she worked hard and saved her money and now she had this. No, this is a family heirloom. Most likely something that's passed down from generation to generation. And so what she's doing here is she's bringing something to Jesus that doesn't just have financial value, but it also has sentimental value. And Mark says that when she brings this perfume to Jesus, she doesn't kind of measure it out into a teaspoon, a tablespoon, or she doesn't even carefully pour a cup. She doesn't measure it out at all. She doesn't give it grudgingly or reluctantly. She doesn't pour little drops on his head. It's not something she has to be urged to do or coaxed into doing. No, but of her own free will, we are told that she breaks the jar. She smashes the jar, which says, this is never going to be used again, and I'm not saving any of this very expensive, pure nard. No, I'm not saving it. I'm not rationing it. I'm not giving it reluctantly. No, this unnamed woman is all in for Jesus. Ken Hughes says that it is an expression of fervent devotion. As fervent devotion as you'll find anywhere in all of Scripture. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Bethany is a town outside of Jerusalem. Simon the leper is an outcast, and an unnamed woman is pouring expensive perfume on Jesus. This is all pointing and driving home to us the idea that this house, this woman, this place is the last place you would expect to find a disciple. And yet this outsider has a lot to teach the insiders about generosity and discipleship. And the lesson that she has to teach us this morning is that when you begin to see who Jesus is, when you get just a glimpse of who he truly is, you don't hold anything back. When you begin to get a glimpse of who Jesus is, in all of his glory and all of his power, the one that Revelation says is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It also says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
All authority in heaven and on earth belong to King Jesus. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were made by him and for him. And he rules and reigns over all people and all countries and all kings and all nations. When you begin to get a glimpse of King Jesus, that he's the one who laid aside his glory and laid aside his power. And he's the one who humbled himself to come to the earth to take the nature of a servant. The one who had authority over all people submitted himself to the cruelties of this world. And when you begin to see that this humility extended to death and death on a cross, it's the king of all creation that has compassion on you. The king of all creation has a humility that attracts us. The king of all creation was compassionate and kind. The holy one who knew no sin, became sin so that you might be reconciled to God. See, what what this woman teaches us is that when we just get a glimpse of who he really is and what he has really done for us, the natural inclination of the human heart is to go all in. The natural inclination of the heart isn't to hold anything back. But then in the story, you have others' reactions. Her reaction to Jesus is to worship. Their reaction to her is to criticize. We're told in the Gospel of John that it was the disciples, specifically led by Judas himself, who began to criticize her. It says they rebuked her harshly. So you can imagine how all the atmosphere has changed. We had a big party celebrating Jesus, and now, because they're rebuking her, it's all gone quiet. The festive mood has turned tense. They say she's wasting this valuable nard. It could have been used to help the poor. Now, we don't know what their motives were. Were they really concerned about the poor? Maybe. Or were the poor just a pawn in their own game of self-interest? Again, we don't know their motives, but what we do know is that they considered her costly, fervent devotion to be a waste. The disciples, led by Judas, criticize this woman. They criticize Mary. And if you think about it, it takes a lot of gumption to do so. I mean, here, Simon, their dad, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have hosted a party to celebrate what Jesus has done. And they've invited these people, these outsiders, into their home. And they've done all the preparation. They've done all the serving. They've done all the work. All the expense has been borne by them. And then in the middle of the party, as an act of worship, Mary pours perfume on Jesus, and they get criticized her. Whenever you serve in ministry, there will always be people like Judas who are criticizing you. Always. All of you are serving in some way, and you know what it's like to be criticized when you're just trying to do your best to make it work. Unfortunately, all of us have been on the other side too, where we've watched others and we've sat back and criticized them. You didn't do it well enough. You did it too well. You didn't spend enough. You spent too much. It's too loud. I don't like that kind. I want this kind. Well, you know, we all know. 
what the criticisms are because they never really change. But be warned, when you and I fall into the trap of sitting back and criticizing others and what they're doing in ministry, we are assuming the spirit of Judas. Judas, who didn't do anything but sit back, reserving his energy to evaluate Mary's worship. And so that's the contrast that Marx wants us to see. The worshiping Mary, surrendering her life, going all in, and the criticizing, evaluating, angry, indignant disciples. Verse 6 tells us Jesus' response. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, did you catch it? Did you catch that the disciples look at what Mary's doing and they say she's wasting this? But what they call wasteful, Jesus calls beautiful. You see, the value of Jesus is not always seen. The supremacy and worth of Jesus is not seen by everybody. Some people have eyes to see who he really is and what he has done, and others don't. And so if you begin to get a glimpse of more and more of who he really is, and your life starts to say, I'm all in for Jesus, that's going to look odd and strange to people who don't see his value. Some people will say, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time living for him. After I became a Christian, friends and family, well-intentioned, said things like, don't go overboard. I'm glad you're a Christian, but don't overdo it. You know, don't, don't get too religious. No one minds if you're a little bit religious, but don't get too religious. Don't overdo it. The world doesn't have any problem with you being a Christian in moderation. But just don't do too much of it. Don't get too radical. Don't go all in. Now, understand the world has no problem with too much wealth or too much power or too much sex or too much influence. But it doesn't want you to be too Christian. Verses 8 and 9 explain where Mary's worship, or what Mary's worship is rooted in, says this. This is Jesus speaking. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see what she did? She poured out that perfume to prepare him for his burial. Now remember that at least three times we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, at least three times Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. And they have done nothing to commemorate his death. He's in Jerusalem. They know why he's come there, but he doesn't get it. None of the disciples get it. But here is this unnamed woman, and she understands, and she comprehends on just a different level. And so she takes her most valuable possession and pours it on him to prepare him for his burial. She got that Jesus was coming to die. 
I'm not sure that she got everything. I truly don't know if she knew at that point that he was going to the cross. I don't know if she understood that he was going to the cross to be a substitute for sinners. But clearly what she did know is that her devotion, her fervent, passionate, all-in devotion was in response to his death. He, she, in some sense, had the idea that he was dying for her. And that's why she's an example throughout the centuries. That's why her story will always be told wherever the gospel is preached. See, fervent devotion is evidence that we get the gospel. That like Mary, we're beginning to see who he really is. It'll be in different degrees. It'll have different kinds of expressions, but it will always be present. Fervent devotion, in some way, shape, or form, will always be present in every Christian's life. To the point that if you don't see any of it, it might cause you to question whether you really get the gospel. See, because those who believe the gospel are being transformed by the gospel. Just like this woman brought to Jesus, her most valued possession. So every Christian is in the process of bringing their life to the feet of Jesus. Bringing their whole life to the feet of Christ. And the reason is just like this woman was. Overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. To you and me, sinners. Right after I became a Christian in college, I, I, I honestly did something that I, I'm almost embarrassed about now. It's very, very weird. I don't know why I did it. No one told me to do it. But for some reason I did, and that is I'd become a Christian, and I started going around to guys in the fraternity house that I lived in, and I started to say, hey, you know what? I became a Christian, and so my life's changing. And I just remember the expressions on their face. I mean, I really can right now see me standing at their door, looking like a, I don't know, a door-to-door salesman or something, and telling them this, and I, they didn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't encourage you to do it. It was weird. But for some reason, I just started to get it, and I just felt like I needed to tell somebody. Even if I was telling people that I knew had no interest in it. It didn't even cross my mind to not tell them. I remember picking up my Bible. I, I, I had to get a Bible, find a Bible, but wanting to read the Bible. I tracked down a Bible, and I just started reading it. And I didn't know what to do, so I had this highlighter. I didn't know really any Christians at this point, so I had a highlighter that I would just highlight verses in my Bible. And if you would have said to me, why are you highlighting that verse? I would have said, I don't know. I don't even really sure I know what it means. But I feel like you've got to do something. I highlight my textbooks. Why not highlight the Bible? Seems right to me. I, I just remember that my, it was like my taste buds were changing. It's like the things that I had a desire before, before, I, I, not so much. And, and things that I would have never dreamed of doing, I started to crave. It was like God intervened and gave me two new taste buds and changed my heart so I'd want things that I had never wanted before. Now, everybody's story is different. Some are more dramatic than mine, some less so. Some have become Christians when they're very young, and some became Christians when they're older. The stories are all different, but all of us in some way or another are on the same trajectory of seeing Jesus and surrendering our life to him. See, that's how this woman helps us so much. 
is that she allows us to evaluate our own life. To say, is my love for Christ being expressed through worship and through giving and through sacrifice and through serving? Is he, is Jesus becoming more and more important in my life? More important than my family? More important than my education? More important than my free time? More important than being popular? More important than being in style? Is Jesus becoming more important than my career? More important than my personal autonomy? Because I think that's what had happened to this woman. She finally got who he was, and, and he was more important to her than the most valuable, sentimental, family heirloom, financial thing she had. See what should have happened in that story? is that when the disciples and everyone else at that party saw that woman pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus, they all should have just said, hey, could I have some? Could I have a little drop of yours so I could put it on him too? Here, I got this. Can we pour this? It's not that valuable, but I want to go all in. Can I do a little? She's the outsider. They're the insiders. She's worshiping. They're criticizing. So what do you do if you see this woman's life and like me you say, well, my fervent devotion has dissipated some. Or it's hard to keep it as intense every day as I'd like it to be. Or I've kind of faded off into mild interest. Not fervent devotion. Enough to keep me generally in line but not really loving my Savior. And Charles Spurgeon has a little paragraph I want to read to you. 18th, sorry, 19th century British preacher. And, and he answers this question. Here's how he goes. He goes, are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance, he asks. Then he says this, let me affectionately warn you. For it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of our Savior's face. Spurgeon says it is a grievous thing when we can live happy, contented, everything's going a fine life without presently enjoying, without fervent worship of our Savior. He says, let me work to show you what an evil thing this is. Little love to our own dying Savior. Little joy to our own precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the Beloved. You should sorrow at the hardness of your heart. But don't stop with sorrow, he says. Remember where you first received salvation and go to the cross. Because there and only there at the cross can you get your spirit aroused. It doesn't matter how hard and how insensible and how dead we may have become. Let's go again, he urges, in all of our rags, in all of our poverty, in all of the defilement of our natural condition, and let's clasp the cross. Let's look into our Savior's languid eyes. Let's bathe in the fountain filled with his blood. This, he says, will bring back our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives will become. 
See, that's what we want to do for a moment here in communion, is dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. Because nothing puts our lives into proper perspective more than fixing our eyes on a dying Savior. See, that's what we can do at the communion table, is fix our eyes on a dying Savior who gave his life for us, And when we just get a glimpse of him, our great king, who has given himself for us, our heart wants to go all in for Jesus. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, take and eat. And he took some wine and poured it into a cup and said, this is my blood, Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, we'll take communion. If you haven't taken it with us before, let me explain how it works. Whenever you're ready, you'll come forward. The aisles, all the aisles are available, so come down the aisles. Come to the stool in front and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice that is on the stool or the wine that's in our hand. Uh, this morning on the Far, your far right, my left, there's a gluten-free aisle. If that's something that helps you, then take advantage of that. When you come forward, you don't need to say anything to us, although we will say a word of encouragement to you. Uh, every time we take communion at the crossing, we remember those in our church and in our community who have physical and financial needs. So all the money that goes into these baskets with a white cloth during communion is dedicated only for that purpose. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would warm our heart to Christ. That as we take part in communion and as our mind and heart begins to grasp the King of all creation, dying for us sinners, I pray that it would melt our heart, melt our heart of stone, Warm our affections for Christ that we might, like this woman, go all in for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.